everyone and welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is Rachel Pether and I'm a senior advisor to Skybridge Capital based in Abu Dhabi, as well as being the MC for SALT, a thought leadership forum and networking platform that encompasses business, technology and politics. SALT Talks, as many of you regular viewers know, is a series of digital interviews where we speak to some of the world's foremost investors, creators and thinkers. And what we're really trying to do here is provide our audience a window into the minds of subject matter experts. Today, we'll be discussing why investors should be bracing for lower returns. And I'm very excited to be speaking to my friend, Shimon Ijakovsky, fund manager at Abu Dhabi Commercial Bank. Shimon leads the third party fund selection for ADCB and co-manages discretionary client investment portfolios. He started his career with Morningstar in London, where he was involved in the rollout of Morningstar's qualitative fund research and ratings across Europe and Asia. Shimon holds a master's degree, a bachelor's degree, and is a CFA charter holder. As always, if you have any questions at all during today's talk, just enter them in the Q&A section of your Zoom screen. Shimon, welcome to Salt Talks. Thanks for having me. Now, before we begin, I've known you for about five years now, and I'm always worried that I get your name pronounced incorrectly. So for the benefit of the audience, can you just pronounce your name in the correct way? <laughs> sure. Uh, I actually think you've done a great, uh, great job pronouncing it, uh, but it's Shimon Ijikovsky. Perfect. And I also, you know, severely paraphrased your biography there. So maybe you can start just by telling me a bit more about your background and how you ended up where you are now in ADCB. Yeah, I, I think you actually summarized it very well. Well, I've been in the industry for uh, nearly 13 years now. I've started my career in London with a company called Morningstar, and that was in beginning of 2008. So very interesting times to join financial services. Uh, but that also means that pretty much I've seen the full market cycle by now. Uh, I've joined ADCB in 2015 to lead the multi-manager capabilities for the bank. And I'm responsible for idea or origination, both on the traditional and alternative side, uh, portfolio management, as well as client advisory. Excellent. So, you know, I'm sure we'll get into some of those ideas a little bit later during the course of today's talk as well. But the two of us have discussed before how, you know, post-financial crises returns have exceeded long-term average returns, but that investors should be bracing for lower returns going forward. So maybe you could talk me through some of the structural changes behind that reasoning. Sure. Um, look, the three areas, I think, and then there's, there's probably a number of those areas, but the three areas I, I would like to talk about are demographics, globalization, and global growth. Uh, but maybe before I dive into that, uh, I would like to just spend a minute on actually what, what you just said, that recent returns have exceeded the sort of long-term averages and maybe put a few numbers behind that. Uh, I think it would be a nice place to start. And you're, you've been absolutely right. If we look on equities, uh, US large cap names, S&P 500 benchmark, pretty much over the last 10 years, it has returned something like 13, 14% annualized. 
versus its long-term average closer to 8%. So if you think that at some point those returns win, will mean revert to the long-term average, that would simply imply a quite, uh, quite lower returns going forward. And um, as, as we just discussed a few minutes before this, this webinar, uh, I was earlier today looking on capital market assumptions on some of the bigger asset managers, uh, BlackRock, JP Morgan, and, and GMO. And uh, of course, all of them would go beyond just the sort of simple mean reversion, but the conclusion has been pretty much the same. So BlackRock, for example, expects that over the next 10 years, S&P 500 will return something like 5% annualized. JP Morgan thinks it's going to be 4% and GMO is the most uh, bearish of all three and GMO doesn't think we're going to see as much as 1% uh, from uh, S&P 500 and again that's after re receiving 13 14% annualized over the last 10 years. Uh, so that's one thing. Uh, unfortunately on the fixed income it doesn't look any better. Um, I guess in the context of fixed income, you probably want to take a little bit longer horizon because I think what we've seen is, is the sort of yields coming down from early 1980s. And that yield compression has provided a, a great tailwind for fixed income investor, investors. But the reality is where we are now, it, most of the sovereign bond funds pay close to zero. Uh, in some cases, these are negative returns. Uh, and we can actually see negative returns even in, 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 a, in a credit, both investment grade and in a high yield. You look on an index such as Barclays Global Ag, and 20% of that index actually is in a negative yield territory. And again, if I look on those three providers, all of them are in the agreement that over the next 10 years, in the real terms, you will unlikely to make any money from government bonds in a nominal, nominal term, there has been sort of mixed conclusion, but that's not a very rosy picture as well. Uh, so that's the sort of, you know, where, where we are. But then if I go back to the structural uh, drivers you've asked about, again, they don't really change the picture or they don't make the picture any more rosy because if I start with demographics, uh, it's, I think it's been a quite topical area. There has been a lot of sort of headline about the Japanification and, and aging populations. And not, none of this is good for the markets. Uh, aging population means that the portion of population that is working versus the non-working population is shrinking. So the involvement in income generation and productivity and workforce is, in, is decreasing. They conduct, that's not a good for economy and that's not a good for uh, cash flow generation of the companies. So ultimately that's not gonna be good for, for our returns if we invest in those companies. So that's, that's one thing. Well, this, the second thing is globalization. And again, I, I think globalization is a trend we've seen over the, the last uh, few centuries. And what it has done is, is, is is, is, is made the world much more interconnected. It has resulted in probably creating more prosperity around the world. Uh, it has produced new products, share know-how, um, 
help to lower the costs, uh, help with the migrations. Uh, but a lot of those trends have been have been reversing. So if we sort of look on, on the last few years, it seems like the globalization has peaked probably around 2010. So this, this, this tailwinds, again, we've been getting in the past from globalizations are not necessarily going to help us going forward. And then the third driver is, is uh, global growth. And again, uh, unfortunately, I don't have a good news there either. Uh, we've been already over the last few years in a slow growth environment. And if I look on the IMF forecast, looks like this growth is only going to continue to moderate. And some of the drivers behind that would be actually globalization, would be those demographics I just spoke about, uh, but it would be just as well things such as, you know, a pile of debt that co companies and governments have, 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 have built with a sort of high leverage. Uh, it's not going to really help going forward. So I really want to pick up. So firstly, thanks for such a great overview and breakdown of those three drivers. I want to pick up on the first point that you made about demographics and maybe just look at how this is impacting demand for equities as well. Just touch on just touch on that, given that it's, you know, also predicted to only be one to five percent return going forward sure. in the S. &P. Yeah, it's and it, that's a good point because I guess when I was talking in the, about demographics, I was referring only to this uh, demographic support ratio for the economies. But you are absolutely right. There is probably another angle you could look at demographics, which is propensity for 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 risk, for risk taking, appetite for risk taking, and a lot of studies suggest that. It is the sort of um, mid-age working population that has the highest propensity for, for, for risk-taking. So these would be those natural buyers of equities. But again, if, you, if we think that uh, the population is aging, this, this appetite for equities will, will be decreasing, which, which, will, which will sort of not be good for the sort of for the prices of equities. Um, but, but maybe second point I would make in that context is, uh, in the con is the context of millennials. Because again, some of the studies suggest that, or some of the expectations suggest that millennials will not necessarily be as eager to buy equities as baby boomers when they were at a sort of uh, peak potential for, for buying equities. So that's again, also gonna drive uh, demand. So where are you seeing, and I appreciate that you're more focused on the, the investment side versus the client focused side, but where are you seeing millennials wanting to invest if it's, if it's not in equities and I'm presuming it's, it's not fixed income? Yeah, it's inter interesting. It, it, I, I think, well, there's probably two points I would make around that because the, the first point is, um, is probably what what I just said that maybe the demand will come come down uh, compared to historical standards, but I guess the the second point that is that is probably quite important in this context is what they will be buying, and I think what we've seen is that 
they tend to they try to align their value systems with with the investment so of course their attention has been much higher in all the sort of esg related teams so again if i look on some of the statistics i've seen they would suggest that probably millennials uh, are twice as likely to buy esg compared to baby boomers so if 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 i think that overall uh, demand for equities will come down maybe within that the sort of sweet spot in the context of millennials would be esg and, and climate related investments yeah and i guess one other thing that's kind of come up in the millennial age as it were is this the sharing economy and i want to link that into the point you made about global growth do you think that we still measure growth correctly in the context of this sharing economy uh, it's a good question let me maybe start uh, explaining the the concept of sharing economy sharing economy just 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 in case some of our viewers are are not familiar with that concept and i think the easiest way to explain this is by using some of the examples which probably most of us know and this would be the type of uber lyft or airbnbs so basically what sharing economy is is the uh, is the part of economy that involves exchange of goods and services on a peer to peer basis but very often utilizing some unused uh, uh, goods or or assets so if you think about uber or or, or lyft and basically personal cars the the reality is that you know we 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 don't use our cars or to the full extent i mean most of us would wake up you drive to the office for half an hour then you park the car you are at the office for the next 8 9 10 hours your car is stay there unused drive back go sleep and basically at the end of the day you use your car for maybe an hour right uh, just imagine you become on top of your full time job you become an uber driver you don't really need a new asset to become an uber driver but you are utilizing an already existed asset uh, it will be the same case for for airbnb in a traditional economy if you wanted to increase the supply of something uh, maybe housing or apartments you would need to build them but but in this within the sort of concept of sharing economy instead of building a new hotel or new apartment you basically utilizing the existing uh, structures and maybe renting renting unused unused uh, rooms so so all those examples in all those examples there is for sure value created by by sharing economy but that value is not necessarily captured by the gdp because you're not buying a new car to provide a service you're not constructing a new hotel or new apartment but but there is some value created um it is a little bit open question i i think we are all trying to find maybe a new template maybe partially that does explain to some extent this sort of slowing growth environment that we've just discussed. That's a really good point. I also do have to add if your day is just driving half an hour to the office, working, driving home and sleeping, then we need to do something about your <laughs> variety in your life. Um, you you also mentioned okay, so you've mentioned demographics, globalization and global growth. So maybe we can now sort of turn that over and look at maybe what is the antidote to some of them and i know you're a big fan of um 
Howard Marks as well, and he was making the comment that asset prices are higher than they were a year ago, prospective returns are lower than they were a year ago. And so people are having to take more risk to get return, but it's not the really the type of an environment where you want to be taking more risk. So I guess putting all of that together, where can investors look for returns if global growth is slowing? Yeah. Look, so if you think we are in this slow growth environment, then you basically need to look for a high growth uh, opportunities. And the way we look at this is for the sort of lenses of new economy versus the old economy. And the new economy would be your uh, type of sort of sectors or industries or companies with some sort of cutting edge technologies that disrupt those traditional and old economies. So this will be maybe your fintech versus traditional financial organizations. This may be electric cars versus the traditional cars. This could be some sort of online learning and online shopping, maybe alternative energy versus, versus traditional energy. So we, we, we do think there is some sort of parallel shift, uh, a paradigm shift taking place. And, and, and we do think that those new economies will be, uh, will be winners from, from this uh, new situation. So that's the first thing. Well, the second comment I would make is probably around private markets. And if, if I think about the private markets, well, the companies right now have much more option to raise capital than they did in the past. So they are not as eager as they used to be to you know, go for the IPO. And when they do, they take much longer to, to get to that stage which means that the value is create much more value is created when they are still private. So if you want to utilize that value, you need to participate or, 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 or buy them when they're still private. I appreciate you are giving up liquidity in that case, but I, I do think it's, it's a very fair trade. And if I look in again, you know, on some of those capital market assumptions, uh, BlackRock, for example, expects that over the next 10 years, you can make as much as 17% on annualized basis from private equity. And that compares to sort of mid single digits coming from public equities. So that, that the trade-off is, I think, quite attractive. And uh, it's the same on, a, on the fixed income side. You will look on uh, direct lending where BlackRock thinks you can make as much as 8% annualized return versus your very low single digits from uh, public fixed income. I mean, but the private markets point you make is a great one. You know, SpaceX just did a Series N funding round. You know, it used to be sort of ABC, stop at D, but companies are staying private much longer for sure. What is your view? You know, we're both based in an emerging market. How are you seeing emerging markets within the things that you've just discussed? Uh, yeah, so I think, uh, you know, I, th I think emerging markets have probably one advantage versus developed markets, and that would be demographics. So when I was speaking about the sort of aging population, uh, most of that applies to developed market. Um, so for, 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 for sure, you know, someone that has a long term uh, investment horizon, there's, there are 
opportunities in emerging markets and I am they're worth considering. And where are you seeing the best opportunities when you look at emerging markets? How do you divide the world, the emerging market world? So we are the most excited about emerging Asia. And we think that on one hand, you do take, take advantage of, of course, those uh, better demographics. But at the same time, if I go back to the, the comments I made about the new, the new and old economy, a lot of the new economy sectors and, and companies you can find in, in Asia. So it sort of ticks both of that boxes. On the other hand, probably I would stay away from the old economy emerging, uh, emerging markets, all those commodity producers, um, mainly on the back of the transition that China goes through, sort of transitioning from more like a manufacturing base toward domestic and service oriented, which means that the demand for commodities is coming down, which of course will not be good for the commodity producing emerging countries. Yeah, and I guess that goes back to your point about capacity as well. Maybe we don't need more things if we're using our current uh, resources more effectively. But we've, we've had an audience question come in, which I think it's probably opportune to ask now. Someone has asked, what is ADCB doing in the ESG space, be that in inequities or fixed income? That's a good question. And, and unfortunately, I feel that ESG has not gained as much traction in the Middle East as we've seen in Europe and in the US. So I think Europe is leading the way. Uh, US uh, is probably second. In the Middle East, I think the, the angle, the only angle I would put in the context of uh, ESG is probably Islamic investing, which you could argue is a form of ESG where you basically align your values with how you invest. And, and of course, most of the local banks will have products around that. Uh, we've got products on both equity side and a fixed income side that give you exposure to Sharia products. And we've seen a lot of interest in those products. But if I look on the sort of broader ESG products, we've, we've, we've talked about it quite a lot. We, we wrote a number of sort of thought leadership papers, uh, but we haven't seen probably as much traction as some of our colleagues in, you know, outside of this region. You know, I'm quite impressed, um, Shimon, because we've, we haven't actually really discussed the pandemic yet, which I'm very happy about. So I'm not going to, to dwell on it, but sort of what we appear to be in now is more of this K-shaped recovery and dispersion amongst sectors that are performing well. How are you looking to take advantage of that dispersion from an investment side? Yes, you are, you are right. I think we've seen a huge dispersion uh, this year. Basically, all those growth-related sectors leading the recovery and value-related sectors uh, lagging. But the reality is this, this is not only this year uh, phenomena. Uh, we, we, we've seen this dispersion actually for, for quite a few years now. And I think by Q3 this year, probably the gap between the growth and value names has been the highest we've ever witnessed. And I think a lot of that goes back to what I said, that we've been in a sort of slow growth environment for, for a number of years. So if I 
was a sort of long-term investors and I and a focus on my strategic asset location, given we don't think uh, the growth is going to pick up materially going forward, I would probably stick to those sort of growth and uh, new economy names. Uh, so that's the first comment I would make. Um, but having said that, we probably have seen some rotation in the last few weeks where those sort of cyclical and value names have been picking up. And I think interesting thing that COVID has uh, created this year um, it's, it's, it's almost rotated the beta of, 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 of names and, and sectors and industries. So sectors that traditionally are associated with trading at a high beta, the type of like, let's say your, your IT sector, actually had a very low beta this year uh, because of all this online demand. So which, which does explain why it has done so well. And on the other hand, uh, real estate, which is traditionally very defensive and low beta sector, actually has seen a huge spike of its beta because of the commercial real estate and problems related to that. So while I made a comment about your long-term and structural positioning, there is probably an opportunity for, for a more tactical investors who would like to potentially play this beta normalization. Of course, we are, you know, UK has just approved the vaccine and probably we're going to see more of that happening as we are seeing this process rolling out and, 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 and economies um, open, reopening again, we're probably going to see some of those um, cyclical or some of those defensive names and sectors that have lagged playing a catch-up game. So for those more tactical investors, probably, you know, things such as airlines, auto, hotel, uh, leisure, uh, energy, and a few other sectors and industries that have lagged could be potentially a nice uh, tactical play. Yeah, absolutely. You know, from the, the hedge fund perspective side, we've seen that it's the distressed corporate credit guys that have really had a great last six months, at least by you know picking up on some of the opportunities that you just mentioned. We've had a couple of audience questions coming in, actually, both of which are brilliant questions, and I wish I'd thought of them myself. Uh, one of them is related to private markets, and from Ken, has the explosion of SPACs, which offer a faster approach to private investment um, liquidity, affected the investment decisions, i.e. in high-growth areas such as tech? Has that in impacted uh, decision making? Yes. So I guess, I mean, I know SPACs haven't yet really taken off in this region yet, but obviously they're all the rage um, of the day in the US at the moment. Are you thinking that that's in, uh, affecting investment decisions with regards to the high growth areas? Mm. I don't have a strong view uh, on, on that, but clearly if we look on overall, I mean, you know, private markets have, have seen huge uh, traction over the last years uh, with a lot, raising a lot of assets. So I think the two probably biggest trends we've seen in the last, last, last few years is, is, is the race, of course, of passive investment on the sort of public space and then uh, 
potential investors going searching for alpha in the private markets. Um, not sure if that's related to what the person from the, from the audience has asked, but uh, potentially does par partially explain some of that. Yeah, that's great. Thanks, Shimon. And if the question wasn't answered, Ken, just do let us know in the Q&A section. Um, a couple of other questions come in. One about hedge funds, one about um, emerging markets. So I'll start with the hedge funds. What is your appetite for hedge funds at the moment and which type of hedge fund do you believe is attractive at this stage in the cycle? So a lot of our locations we do and we sort of on the hedge fund side most of our locations are on the, on the liquid alternatives so across all our models irrespective of risk profile we would have a bucket for alternative assets for, for sort of liquid hedge funds most of our allocations currently are to multi-sector hedge funds uh, so we do see value from a strategic point of view to have those allocations, but we don't necessarily have uh, resources to, 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 to spend and, you know, try to allocate within that, which is why we sort of uh, find fund managers that will do those calls for us. Uh, having said that, some of the discussions we've been having internally has been about potentially some opportunities in event driven within the event driven space, um, given where we are in the market cycle and sort of you know uh, higher uh, M&A activity and sort of well interest rates are, um, so that's probably one area where we've seen a, a little bit more opportunities. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. And also a question from Lindsay, who said, you mentioned your excitement on emerging Asia. What are you most excited about in emerging Asia? And this could be countries or themes. And has COVID accelerated any of those themes or trends that you're seeing in that area? Yeah, so one position we initiated this year was uh, within the sort of equivalent of Nasdaq within China. So again, that was a play on this sort of new technology. So I think if I think about the new technology, the two hubs for that is the emerging Asia. And a lot of that does happen in China, the sort of new internet based companies or the sort of your Baidu's and Alibaba's, which would be probably equivalents of funks you're seeing in, in, uh, in, in the US. So we've initiated position um, uh, in the spring this year to to play that. And within, so you you mentioned China. That's a, obviously a place with uh, a older demographic. Are there certain countries within Asia that you're looking at on a country specific level, or when you look at emerging Asia, it's really more of a a broad brush approach? Yeah, we like I said, it's it's. We, so we are within that we are over within emerging markets uh, we are overweight the uh, asia as a whole and again uh, in model model portfolios i would basically uh, appoint a, an external manager that then would find opportunities within asia but if i look at the countries there if we do point out one country that is china but within the china we do like only that sort of segment of the new technology which we would then have a dedicated product to play that. 
Yeah, and that sounds great. And maybe just to uh, we've just got a um a couple a couple more minutes left here. Maybe you could just finish on a on a, on an optimistic note. Um, I know you're going back. You know you're going back home for Christmas. You'll be coming back to the UAE in the new year. What are you most looking forward to as an investment professional in 2021? It's 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 an interesting question because in in a way, from an investment point of view, if if you look on what how market has done in 2020. It's, it's even hard to believe that something such as pandemic has happened. Uh, but the reality is, you know, economy have struggled. A lot of people have lost job. So in a way, if I think about 2021, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to have a little bit more moderate uh, returns. And in a way, I do think, they, as, as I've been arguing, they might be a little bit more moderate. And I do think a lot of good news is priced in. But I would like... Uh, for, for economies now to start opening and people being able to go back to work and you know uh, maybe us having this, this discussion in a studio or, or being able to to uh, rebuild some of the sort of social uh, relationships so that's the one thing I'm hoping for for 2021. Uh, that's a great thing to hope for and I definitely hope that next time we meet it will be in person as well, but I just wanted to thank you, you know, thank you so much for your time today and thank you as well to the audience. Um, late in the day in December, we had some really great questions. So thank you so much uh, for the audience participation. Thank you so much, Shimon, for sharing your thoughts and insights today as well. Thanks for having me.